This episode is brought to you by the YouTube channel of Wicker Way Drive and presents Free Them Season 1, They Let the Dogs Out. At Wicker Way Drive, they're not just about music. They're about the undeniable magic that happens when beats, rhythms, and melodies collide to create an experience that transcends boundaries. Their mission? Forge an unbreakable community of music enthusiasts who share a common love for discovering the uncharted, the groundbreaking, and the extraordinary. So buckle up and immerse yourself in the sonic journey that is season one of Free Them. Their YouTube channel is a haven for aficionados of rock, pop, country, rap, hip-hop, hip-hop, Americana, folk, blues, and beyond. Brace yourself for an exploration of soundscapes featuring phenomenal talents like The Light Bulbs, Rhett Wicker, LT Braddock, Cocaine Cash, Dance Da Vinci, The SHP, The Hangout, Naif Intent, and The Cover-Up. As a musician myself, I've personally delved into the extraordinary sounds of these independent and unsigned artists. Wickerway Drive is more than just a YouTube channel. It's a sanctuary for uplifting musicians and exposing listeners to tunes rarely heard on traditional radio or seen on TV. Join them on this musical escapade. Hit those like and subscribe buttons, leave a comment, and don't forget to ring that notification bell, ensuring you never miss a beat. Embark on this sonic adventure with them, and in the process, they'll free you too, because at Wicker Way Drive, they believe that absolutely everyone deserves to discover new music in an awesome and meaningful way. Strange Places. I'm your host, Billy Dean Shoemate Third. Yeah, we're back. Huh? This podcast is brought to you by Asylum 817 Productions, Spotify, and DistroKid. So, um, yeah, we have quite the quite the doozy. Quite the title, too. And if you've never heard of this case, boy, you're in for something really, really odd. This, this is a mystery that has everything. <laughs> I mean, everything. We're talking witchcraft, spies, Nazis, taunting messages to the police, and a man driven insane by guilt. It begins around dusk on April 18, 1943. Four teenage boys from the village of Hagley are scouting Hagley Woods. Now, this was during World War II, and, you know, food is scarce. The boys are there illegally, trespassing on land that belongs to Lord Cobham. They're there to poach game and raid bird nests, you know. People were starving at the time. You got to do what you got to do, right? Not condoning it, but, you know, survival. Presently, the boys come across a large witch elm. Thinking that this might be a likely place for a, for a you know, bird to build its nest, one of the boys named Bob Farmer decides to climb the thing. Pulling himself onto the lowest branch, he looks down and sees that there's a large hollow in the tree trunk. Inside, he spots a flash of white. An egg, perhaps. He can't be sure. Light's not very good out. He reaches his hand into the hollow. He gets a grip on it and withdraws it from the hole. What he sees almost causes him to fall from his perch. It's a human skull. The boys left the woods in a hurry that night, partly out of terror and partly for fear of being caught. Before they parted ways, they made a pact. None of them were to speak of this 
To do so would get them in serious trouble. Trespassing on the land of the local nobility was a serious offense. And they, you know, weighed their options. They said, no, this is definitely not worth it. That's what they thought. The boys left the woods in a hurry that night. They got the hell out of there. But of course, packs of secrecy seldom hold, right? Especially packs between children. One of the boys, Tom Willits, eventually told his father. He contacted the police. Soon, the area around the Witch Elm was being cordoned off. A police constable was sent up a ladder to peer into the hollow. What he found was way more than just a skull. It was an entire skeleton. The bones were carefully removed from the tree and shipped off to Birmingham University to be examined by uh, home office pathologist Professor James Webster. He concluded that the remains were that of a woman around five feet tall and in her mid-30s. She was dead for at least 18 months and was placed in t- inside the tree after her death. Now, it would have been impossible to put her there once rigor mortis set in, Right. The woman had birthed at least one child in her lifetime. And they could tell that by looking at the pelvic structure, you know, all that stuff. Tufts of hair still attached to the skull were mid-brown. The other noteworthy physical feature was her teeth. These were irregularly uh, shaped. The front incisors were kind of overlapping a little bit. She had dental work done, including the removal of some molars. In fact, she had some pretty extensive dental work done. Which is, you know, kind of unusual for the time. As for the cause of death, that was difficult to determine in the absence of obvious physical trauma. A swatch of, I always say this wrong, taffeta cloth? Is that how you say it? Taffeta cloth? It was ripped from her skirt and stuffed down her throat. It suggested, you know, asphyxiation. There was one more detail, a pretty macabre one. One of the woman's hands was missing. A police dog would later sniff it out. It was buried a short distance from that witch elm tree. The hand, separately, was buried. Professor Webster concluded his findings by stating that foul play was certainly involved in the woman's death. He says, and I quote, I cannot imagine a woman accidentally slipping in there, neither do I think it was reasonable for a woman to crawl into that place to commit suicide. That left the uh, Worcestershire... Worcestershire? Worcestershire. Sorry about that. I, I'm getting better at it, guys. <laughs> the Worcestershire. I, I was actually on a, I guess, spotted on a podcast uh, with a gentleman that, uh, it was kind of a, like a business podcast. I just guest spotted on on one. This gentleman is from Worcestershire. And I was kind of making a joke with him. I said, okay, here in America, we cannot pronounce Worcestershire, Worcestershire sauce. We, we cannot you know, Worcestershire. I've heard it so many different ways. We can't pronounce it properly. And he's the one that corrected me. He said, no, it's, it's called Wooster. It's actually called Wooster is what, you know. So I said, well, yeah, but that's going to mess with my head. Can I say Worcestershire? And he goes, yeah, Worcestershire is okay. That kind of works. That's kind of a layman term. He's like, but you actually pronounce it Wooster. Anyway, yeah, that was a long segue there. But they, they left a, a Worcestershire police with a murder to solve. They started by trying to find out who this person was. The clues were scant. Most promising was the victim's unique dental work, but despite contacting every dentist for miles around, the effort came up completely empty. Meanwhile, other officers were scouring missing persons reports, trying to find someone who matched the victim's physical appearance. As you can imagine, this was a laborious manual task. 
making, you know, made more difficult by the era that they were living through. I mean, populations are typically in flux in times of war, right? People frequently go missing, they're killed in bombing raids, bodies are sometimes obliterated or burned beyond recognition, this happens. But one promising lead came from a pair of creep-soled shoes that were found with the corpse. These were traced to the Waterfoot Company and... <laughs> those English listeners out there, you're probably going to want to kick my ass by the end of the episode. Lancaster? Like, Lancaster. Lancaster. That's how you say it, right? Lancaster. I know I'm saying that right. Feel free to correct me. Send me a message. But these shoes were traced to the Waterfoot Company in Lancaster. They were sold exclusively at a market stall in the town of Dudley, I can say that, around 11 miles from Birmingham. Detectives were able to track down the buyers of all, but, but let me rephrase that. I got ahead of myself. Detectives were able to track down the buyers of all of them, but six pairs. But that got them no closer to identification because they still had six pairs they couldn't account for. The case got stalled. The public soon lost interest. There were bigger stories in the news. There was a war. You know what I mean? Six months after the discovery of the body, a strange graffiti appeared, written in chalk on a wall in the area. Who put Lubella down the witch elm, it read. It was the first time that a name had been connected to the deceased woman. Over the next few months, similar messages appeared, always etched in chalk, always written by the same hand. Gradually, the graffiti artist settled on who put Bella in the witch elm. The police weren't sure if this was a clue or a taunt. Was it written by Bella's killer, perhaps an ex-lover, or was it just a prank? Either way, the police were desperate to interview the person who wrote this. Photographs of the graffiti appeared in newspapers all over the place, along with an appeal for information. Did anyone recognize the writing? Well, guess what? Nobody did. Or at least no one came forward to admit it. The war ended. Work began to restore a semblance of normality, especially in the Birmingham area that was so heavily bombed. Ahead lay years of austerity struggle, rebuilding. The case of Bella was all but forgotten at this time, even if the graffiti artist popped up every now and then to still pose his enigmatic question. That happened after the war, still graffiti. Even today, with the case still unsolved, graffiti sometimes still appears in that area. Can you believe that? Written on walls and buildings in the area, who put Bella in the witch elm? The answer remains a complete mystery. But that is not to say that there haven't been theories. So, <clears throat> excuse me, let's begin with the one offered by the respected anthropologist, Professor Margaret Murray. Now, in the 1950s, Professor Murray was asked to offer her opinion on a murder with occult uh, overtones. A farmer named Charles Walton had been stabbed in the chest and then skewered with a pitchfork that pinned him to the ground. This happened in the village of Lower Quinton, quite close to Hagley. While she was working on the case, Professor Murray got to hear of the Bella murder and got fascinated by it. Her conclusion after examining the evidence was that Bella's death was a ritualistic killing involving witchcraft. Now, the basis for this claim was Bella's severed hand. According to Professor Murray, this is typical of an occult practice known as the Hand of Glory, in which the victim's hand is severed and buried apart from the rest of the body. This is a thing. We know about this. 
what it's supposed to do is meant to bestow power on the occult practitioner. Professor Murray also found significance in the manner of Bella's burial. First off, there's the choice of tree. It's a witch elm. These things have been associated with witchcraft for centuries. That's how they got their name. The fact that Bella was entombed inside one of these trees rather than buried was also indicative of ritualistic slang, according to Professor Murray and a lot of other people online. She believed that Bella had probably committed some offense against a local coven or saw something she wasn't supposed to see and she was executed as a result. Interesting hypothesis, but it's not the only one I found, kids. The next theory, I would say a little bit more grounded possibly, it involves espionage. During World War II, any number of German spies were active in Britain, many of them scouting the locations of factories for the you know, Luftwaffe to bomb. The Midlands, with its high concentration of heavy industry, was a huge target. In 1953, the uh, Wolverhampton Express and Star, they received a letter from somebody who identified herself as Anna of Claverly. She said that she had information on the identity of Bella and agreed to meet with a journalist named Wilfred Byford Jones. According to Anna, Bella had been a member of a spy ring and was killed while engaged in that activity. Anna turned out to be Una Mosop. She alleged that Bella was killed by a Dutch national named Van Ralt after she was outed as a spy. How did she know this? Her husband, Jack Mossop, witnessed the murder. Mossop was, uh, he was a serving RAF pilot from what I could see, and he, he was drawn into the world of espionage and counter-espionage by Van Ralt. The guy was a legit spy. The story has a lot of problems, though. <laughs> I, I just got to tell you. Not least of which is that Jack Mossop, you know, according to the reports, was that this guy served in the RAF. He was an RAF pilot. I can't find any, any documentation of him serving in the RAF at all. Could this be indicative of his, you know, spying activities? Would they take the time to erase this kind of stuff? Possibly. But this doesn't look good. However, Una had other versions on hand. Another went like this. Mossop, Bella, and Van Ralt had been drinking at a local pub. Bella, a heavy drinker, overindulged and passed out. Van Ralt then decided to teach her a lesson. He and Mossop drove, uh, they drove the inebriated woman out to Hadley Woods and placed her in the hollow tree. They believed that she'd be so traumatized when she woke up in this place that she would never drink again. This prank, however, went awry, as you can imagine. Bella was unable to pull herself out of the tree hollow. She was trapped there and died a slow, lonely, painful death. This was something that haunted Jack Moss up for the rest of his life, apparently. He had recurring nightmares and eventually suffered a mental breakdown, actually. He died at St. George's Hospital in Stafford in 1942, the year before Bella was found. He never said a word but he would often rant about a woman that he pulled a prank on that he stuffed inside a hollow tree. No one believed him until they found the body. Anna Mossop appears to have quite an imagination, though. <laughs> There's little evidence I found to support either of these. They're just kind of wild tales. They're a bit apocryphal, if you've noticed. The spy story might, Kate, might carry a kernel of truth, though. I found an official MI5 document. Okay, this is an M MI5, declassified. This might back it up. 
Okay, so just hear me out, okay? I know I don't want to sound like one of those guys, the big black marker, you know, but there's something to this. It took me all night to find the damn thing, but, you know, when you hit pay dirt, it's a good feeling. The story goes something like this, okay? In 1941, a German spy named Joseph Jacobs parachuted into Cambridgeshire but suffered a broken ankle on his landing, and he was captured. Jacobs had in his possession a photograph of the glamorous German actress and cabaret singer Clara Burrell. Under interrogation, he revealed that Clara was his lover and she was recruited by the Nazis as a spy. She parachuted into the West Midlands earlier that year but had not been heard from since, Part of his mission was to find her. Joseph Jacobs was es- he was executed as a spy, 1941. However, those following the Bella case were left to wonder, could Clara Burrell have been Bella? Some of the details kind of match up with Una Masop's story, right? The spy angle for one, and the fact that Clara disappeared in the West Midlands. But here, the story breaks down a little bit. Clara Burrell was really... I mean, she was 5'10". The body found in the witch elm was only 5 feet even. And records show that Clara died in a Berlin hospital in 1942. 80 years, man. 80 years on. And this Bella and the witch elm story continues to fascinate us. There has, and in case you're wondering, because I know your brain is going to go there, my, de- my brain did immediately. What about DNA? There has been a push to try to identify her with DNA, but there's a problem. Bella's bones are missing. Yeah. They were originally donated to Birmingham University for study back in the 1940s, but until the early 70s, they appeared as an exhibit in the Birmingham City Police's Black Museum. Sometime later, they disappeared. In 2023, just this year, the BBC launched an appeal to museums hoping to track down Bella's remains. So far, zilch. This is a bizarre story. Who put Bella in the witch elm? This episode is brought to you by Love Recovery, the trusted companion for those navigating the challenges of a breakup. In those trying moments, it can be extremely difficult to find the right words or seek the support one needs. Love Recovery steps in, delivering a daily dose of encouragement and tailored support, featuring a daily quote or affirmation, a comprehensive blog, a thought-provoking video, and personalized recommendations all discreetly sent directly to your inbox. For those unsure where to begin on their healing journey, Love Recovery's five-day trial, backed by a money-back guarantee, provides a helping hand. To sweeten the deal, a 20% discount awaits when using the code ND20 at checkout. Recognizing that not everyone may need the service but might know someone who does, they can refer a friend through the website. For every successful sign-up, Love Recovery will send the referrer $5 via PayPal as a token of appreciation without requiring additional payment details. Love Recovery, where the brokenhearted can find understanding, validation, and support during the lonely and often confusing, testing, and heavy time after a breakup. The team, rooted in personal experience and a background in psychology, is here to guide you toward healing and becoming a stronger, better version of yourself. Because sometimes, everyone needs a little help finding their way back to happiness. Visit the link in this episode's description and let Love Recovery be the gentle nudge toward a brighter, more resilient new chapter in your life. 
Now, I know I don't do a lot of kind of true crimey things on the show, but the few ones that I've done, and I try to sprinkle those in, you know, a little every once in a while. If it's macabre and creepy and mysterious enough, you guys really seem to dig it. Those tend to be like my, you know, biggest episodes. It's it's a really, really bizarre thing. It, I found a Radio 4 program. Okay, this was this came out in like 2014. The host, Steve Punt, he suggested that two possible victims it might be. One victim possibly was reported to the police in 1944 by a Birmingham uh, woman of the night. In the report, she stated that another, I'll just say a sex worker, called Bella, who worked on Hagley Road, had disappeared about three years previously. The name Bella, or Lou Bella, suggested the graffiti writer was probably aware of the identity of the victim. Oh, you don't say. A second possibility came from a statement made to police in 1953. Una Musop, right? That's a big one. But there's, an, you know, there's that declassified file. He was the last, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Jacobs. But, but, <laughs> what's crazy about this guy is he was the last guy ever to be put to death in the Tower of London. August 15th, 1941. Broke his ankle trying to parachute. On his person was found a photo purportedly of his lover. But the body just doesn't match. I think this one is pretty far-fetched. I know witchcraft is a really radical theory, but that seems to be the only one that really doesn't have any major glaring holes in it. I hate to say that, but it's true. This practice is an occult ritual. This is Romani. People have been doing, you know, the severing the hand thing for centuries. In 1953, there was another theory, though, namely that the victim was a Dutch woman named Clarabella Dronkers. She had been killed by a German spy ring consisting of a British officer, a Dutchman, and a music hall artist knowing too much. Available records and evidence were unable to support this story. But the, the graffiti started to appear in 1944. Since the 70s, similar graffiti sporadically appeared near the Hagley Obelisk near where the woman's body was discovered. People are still putting graffiti there, probably because you know it's kind of in the public zeitgeist now. I know this has nothing to do with this case that I'm about to mention, but this reminds me a lot of the Somerton man. I want to look up something. We have a lot of similar things with the, with the Somerton man. You know that on, I don't know if you know this or not, but the reason I haven't done this episode be, <laughs> about the Tom Mom Should case, the Somerton man in Australia, that's one of the most fascinating cases I've ever come across, and I could not wait to do an episode on it, but I'm not going to, because on July 26, 2022, they finally, finally, since 19, oh, when did this happen? 1948, this guy was found, and they just now identified him. He was an electrical near, his name is Charles Webb, Carl Charles Webb, an electrical engineer and instrument maker born on 16th of November, 1905. But here is the thing. This Bell in the Witch Elm case really reminds me of that. So who is this Carl Webb guy? You might not think this has anything to do with it. But this case had spy written all over it too, right? 
The guy's labels were torn out of his clothes. He had cigarettes that you had to buy in another country. None of his identification matched up. The thread that was used to mend some of his clothing, you couldn't buy, but all the way across the world at the time. So who was this guy? He seems to pretty be a pretty normal dude. Uh, he attempted suicide with an overdose of ether. She was, you know, he had bouts of depression. Uh, looks like he was uh, kind of physically abusive to the wife. He moved out in 47. No official records revealing his subsequent whereabouts have been found as of 2022. However, I'm just kind of skimming through this. Okay. So the coded messages. They found out that the coded messages, yeah, he had coded messages on him, that the coded messages were because he liked to bet on horses and he didn't want his uh, his old lady finding out. He had a gambling addiction. And all these coded messages were actually the names of the horses. That's why it looked like coded. You've seen horse names. <laughs> he had serious mental health issues. He kind of spiraled down after losing four close relatives in seven years. His history and the autopsy findings said he committed suicide by poisoning himself. And this thing had spy written all over it. I hate to link these two cases and say that they're similar or they're the same thing or it can't be this, can't be that. But there's two things that come to mind when I think of something like this or the Tom Should case, you know, the Somerton man. The simplest explanation is usually the easiest but we can't lean on that, can we? <laughs> because, you know, every, you look at the Tom Should case, and what's the first thing out of your mouth? Ah, oh, that guy probably poisoned himself, or he, you know, was murdered, or, you know, just what? He wasn't no spy. This is a weird one. I'm looking at the skull of Bella here right now. They took a photo of it. 18th of April, 1943. Nothing crazy looking here. What's kind of spooky is there's some of, still some of her hair, you know, attached to it. The modern graffiti looks nothing like, you know, as you would imagine, the modern graffiti looks nothing like the original graffiti, which they took uh, photos of of that, too. Yeah, it's different handwriting, obviously. Technically, maybe the person could still be around. I mean, it's been 80 years. Unless, you know, whoever wrote it was a child, like the, you know, but the body was discovered by children, right? I think the only thing that really makes sense is the hand of glory. It's a ritual. The victim had been killed by Romani people during an occult ritual. There's a lot of strange things about this case that do not add up. It's obvious, and nobody mentions this part of it. It is obvious that whoever Bella or you know whoever she is, she came from means. She had money. She had extremely, uh, ex she had extensive dental work done. This is something that people just didn't really do back then. It wasn't, you know, you couldn't just go to your corner dentist, especially during, you know, wartime. Ugh, acid reflux, sorry about that. Especially during wartime. And this was recent dental work. Some people go to the spy angle again. They say, oh, she was trying to alter her teeth so she couldn't buy, be identified by dental records. That's a bit of a stretch. Can we prove it? No, but that's pretty stretchy. <laughs> You're really taffying this case at this point, man. Will we ever know? I made the mistake of... See, I made um, one of the... I'm, I'm not kidding. One of the ideas for the pilot 
episode of Strange Places was the Somerton Man case. I did record like a 15-minute episode, kind of a pilot based on the Somerton Man. And I know <laughs> I've changed a lot since then. I had the balls back then to say, we will never know what happened. There's just not enough there, not enough evidence, not enough this, not enough that. We will never know about the Tom Umshud case. We will never know who the Somerton Man is. Cut to 2022, I was wrong. And I'll be man enough to admit that. So I'm not going to be so dumb as to say that again. It may be, I mean, it's been 80 years. Might be another 80 years when we're going to find out. But some of these things do remain a mystery forever. But I think very few of them are going to remain a mystery forever. I just, maybe I'm too uh, optimistic. <laughs> I think someday we will identify who Jack the Ripper is. We will find out who the Zodiac is. We will find out who killed Elizabeth Short. I think it's time, technology, and people's interest that's, that just keeps these things alive. I'm not going to say we'll never know who Bella is. I'm not going to say the spy angle has holes in it. The ritualistic thing, the hand of glory. Boy, that, that's a really likely one. But in order to pin witchcraft on something, I mean, there's got to be more there. I do find it extremely odd that the hand was severed and buried, buried somewhere else. I think to myself, okay, animals, right? This was scavenged by animals. Land animals, when they scavenge a corpse, in particular a human corpse, what do they go after first? Soft tissues. They go after eyes. They go after cartilage. They go after tongues. They go after wrists, fingers, ankles. I was thinking about that, too. You know, this could be just natural animal scavenging because they go after those soft tissues first. But this thing was purposely buried. And I think there may be a way to prove, seriously, I think there may be a way to prove that it was ritualistic. The hand of glory technique, <laughs> I would call it. I know it's really macabre and disgusting. But the hand of glory witchcraft technique. If I could find a very specific way or a very specific distance in which this hand needs to be buried, and if it matches Bella and that crime scene, I mean, it better match down to the T. I mean, down to the fucking, you know, I'll give it a little bit of leeway, but it's going to be in centimeters, boy. If I could find out how far away you have to bury that hand and it matches Bella, I think we got something pretty compelling. Let me cut here real quick, and I'm going to see just how well documented this Hand of Glory thing is. I want to see how far away you have to bury this hand for it to be, you know, the right ritual or whatever. We're going to cross-reference that and see how far away the hand was buried from Bella, and maybe we'll get an idea. Let me cut real quick, because this might take a while. Okay, so I hit record again. I'm not seeing anything specific, but it does say it has to be in the, where did this go? I lost it. The far southwestern kind of area of where the body is and within a mile of, because there's also a spell called the Tree of Glory too, 
and it's pretty similar to the hand of glory thing. Kind of weird that we have, you know, a tree that specifically says use a witch elm, you know, things are lining up here. So we need to find out if Bella's hand was found in the southwest direction of her body and if it was within a mile. I'll be right back. Okay, so I'm still trying to find it. But then, I, I, okay, I keep going back to the rigor mortis thing, right? Rigor mortis hadn't set in yet, you know, but when she was placed into the tree. This is obviously murder. Either that or an, or, or an accidental death, right? That kind of makes the, the prank thing come through, too. That this woman was a heavy drinker. Someone decided to teach her a lesson. She was accidentally killed. Somebody went, oh, shit, you know, we were just messing around. It could have been an accidental thing, in which case... You know, in a court of law, that would be murder anyway, right? So, either way, it's a guarantee that either by accident or on purpose, this body was dumped. This is a homicide. So, yeah, people are saying ritualistic. <clears throat> the spy thing just doesn't add up. Okay, what is this? In 2014, Dr. John Lund, 101 years old, he gave an interview to the BBC. It's an excellent place to hide a body. You're telling me, boy, where was her hand found? I'm, it, it just keeps saying that she, uh, her hand was found some distance, some distance from the body. Well, some distance could be anything. Placed inside the tree very soon after her death, rigor mortis. Yeah, we know that. Oh, yeah, the, the piece of the skirt stuffed in her mouth. So, ah. Uh, you ever see the movie Jawbreaker, <laughs> where they they uh, pull a prank on one of their you know girlfriends and they tape a Jawbreaker you know in her mouth? You ever see that movie? And she ends up choking on the Jawbreaker and dies. It kind of was like this too. Maybe they stuffed her mouth so you know they wouldn't scream, teach her a lesson, pull a prank, whatever. That has some credence to it too. This is weird, but. Oh, I found something interesting. The four boys who discovered the woman's body said they had wrapped some cloth around a stick and wedged into her mouth when they pulled the skull back. But that could be uh, completely debunked, too, because they found out the cloth was made out of the same material as what she was wearing. So what, did the boys rip her clothes? And No, that's ridiculous. Uh... And the boys said this themselves, so we have some conflicting information. But then again... You know, these are little kids. Yeah, it's really hard to get something, you know, concrete there. Very distinct dental records. Uh, what about missing persons reports? Even during the time. Yeah, no match. Wow. This is crazy. I know I'm being really, really quiet here, but I am kind of speed looking at all this. Former Birmingham counselor. No, I don't. I studied that angle. I keep seeing spying, spying, spying. A group of pro-German conspirators who were working with their husband to obtain intelligence about weapons. Yeah, there's a lot of spy angles here. They said she died at the hands of a sadistic killer who knew nothing of witchcraft or black magic. How do you know that? <laughs> Part of the Hagley Woods mystery has endured for so many years. I mean, it's due to the sporadic outbreaks of graffiti, right? That still say to this day, who put Bill in the witch elm? Even these writers today have never been identified. 
Was it Bella's murder originally? An ex-lover, neighborhood kid playing a prank. You know, one of her peers pulling a prank. But there is something I need to... I know I'm going a little over time, but there is something that I need to mention that no one in these articles ever mentions. The fucking writing. You know how high the writing was on that wall? Too high to be to have been done by the boys. And some people are pointing fingers at the boys saying they did the graffiti. No, it was an adult. That writing was way too high on the wall. And nobody notices that. Nobody mentions that. It's very clearly stated in the original reports. That stuff was written pretty high. This was done by a grown-up. The police, you know, were inclined to the view that this is the work of someone coming into the city early in the morning. And uh, this was an, a, an adult who passed by the scene, possibly. Like the guy that they almost identified as Jack the Ripper, remember? This was a few years ago. They thought they had him identified, but then they figured out that he was just some kind of messed up mentally individual that fondled one of the bodies as he walked past it that night. Yeah, that look that up. That actually happened. He was on the suspect list too, believe it or not. But this guy was kind of mentally disturbed and apparently as he was walking, I think it was, uh, which body was it? I'll have to look it up. I don't remember. It was one of the canonical five. But he walked past one of Jack the Ripper's freshly murdered you know, women and actually fondled one of the bodies as he walked past it. Didn't report it to the police. So there's you know weird things like that too. Hmm. Man, these explanations are all over the place. So I, I would say comfortably right now that this is completely inconclusive. We have no idea who did this. Though Here are the things that we know for sure. Accidental, on purpose, otherwise, this was a homicide. She was placed into that witch elm before rigor mortis set in. While they were still able to manipulate her limbs, nothing was broken, nothing was, you know... Nothing like that. They didn't have to break anything or contort anything to put her in there. She was alive or freshly dead when she was placed inside that witch elm. The hand was removed. Unfortunately, the reports are so damn old. I can't find anything about was it in the southwest corner? Was it within a mile? No idea. The report was really vague on that, which is unfortunate because I think we could have really pinned it down. The writing was way too high on the wall to have been done by the boys and there's just a lot of stories with a lot of holes. This is probably one of those where we're just going to have to let time tell us. It may never tell us. It may be a thing of <laughs> a subject of in intrigue forever. So what do you think? Who put Bella down the witch helm? Let me know. All right, contact me. And that's all, friends. Special thanks to this week's sponsors who make this show possible. Head to Asylum817.com. That's Asylum817.com to check out all things your humble host and all my artistic ventures. Make sure to also check out the link to our Patreon page in this episode's description, where as little as a dollar a month, you can get everything from bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, giveaways at certain tiers, outtakes, bloopers, a podcast just for the patrons. Yeah, I'm psychotic. Special thanks to the patrons, by the way. The Kunkel Homestead YouTube channel, Donald Haynes, Dillagaff, Kristen Belt. I appreciate all of you. Now, are we ever going to run out of strange places to talk about? I don't think so. Because every town has a strange place, and maybe one day, we'll visit yours.
Special thanks to this week's sponsor, Dr. Cliff Burt and Friends Sports Talk, featuring the best in women's sports and HBCU athletics. Woman of the Month in Review 2023, Woman Executive of the Week, Amy Brooks, NAIA and NCAA D1, D2 and D3 Volleyball Championship Updates. Women CIAA, SIAC, and Division I basketball updates. MEAC, SWAC, and CIAA bowling updates. NCAA Division II football playoff updates. NCAA Division I top 10 update and early national championship playoff picture. NFL Week 13 updates. HBCU men's basketball updates. CIAA and SIAC. DI men's basketball update. NBA updates. Does any of that sound awesome to you? Well, check out the link in this episode's description and show them some love.